Welcome to Web3 Unpacked. I'm your host, Rich Pasqua, founder and CEO of ARC. Each week we unpack the Web3 revolution. Join us as we discover and explore the people, projects, and visionaries building the trusted web. Hi everybody, welcome to Web3 Unpacked. I'm Matt Sky here with our co-host, Rich Pasqua. Welcome everyone. And today we have a really interesting guest. We have award-winning journalist, author, futurist, uh, Paul Barron. He's host of the Paul Barron Network, and he's covering crypto, blockchain, AI, robotics. I think just about every major transformational technology of the future. Uh, it's super exciting to have him on the program. Uh, Paul, welcome. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. So, Paul, I think let's just jump right into it. If you can maybe tell us a little, for those not familiar, uh, tell us about the Paul Barron Network. Tell us about your history in this space and uh, sure. what got you into covering these technologies. Um, well, you know, we've been in, uh, in tech for quite some time. Most of it has been centered around uh, the Web 2 you know, revolution that occurred over the past couple of decades. Um, my background was birthed out of tech, so I worked with Microsoft very early. Worked with them as a developer lead and uh, helped bring a lot of the Windows platforms, the OS systems, to market, uh, mostly in Asia. And then um, spent a lot of time building uh, technology systems for Fortune 500 and then eventually fell into the media business. Started a few media outlets, um, started and sold them, and then uh, launched my own uh, media company about a decade ago primarily around uh, data science that we were uh, building that was harvesting at that time mostly social listening tools uh, to gauge uh, sentiment data on major retail sectors. And then we eventually fell into um, gauging sentiment around the crypto sector. And that was around, oh gosh, 2016, 17. And, uh, and then launched the secondary during COVID kind of spun uh, our uh, media business into two verticals because we have other media verticals outside of tech and uh, really just got focused on uh, tech and obviously uh, crypto percolated to the top web three and you know, my background, it was an easy pickup for me to really kind of uh, jump into that space. That was kind of how we got started. It's definitely a fast moving space and uh, very exciting. There's, it's definitely not boring. That's for sure. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I know it's every day. There's something new, something, uh, you know, a new company kind of joining the world of uh, web three. Um, very, very exciting. Paul, real quick question, because we go through this a lot ourselves. Um, how much do you think right now, because you've been doing this for a while and you're very, you know, you're focused in on the economics, even some of the politics of uh, of this world. How much do you think is, you know, um, you know, pointed topics versus education, you know, education like broad education for for people trying to get into this, and uh, even if they are into it, how much education do you have to do on a regular basis? Well, web. Th okay, so there's two areas that we see just from our own audience. Our audience is now around 2 million listeners a month, um, both on the podcast and the video version side of it. So we get a lot of feedback. We also have a private member group called the Diamond Circle that's approaching 80,000 members. So the amount of, of feedback we're getting around this is what we would like 
um, is mostly centered around early stage education. Uh, mm-hmm. And what that what we've kind of discovered through just, you know, polls and and really looking at some of the test models that we use for content development is right now it's a, a it reminds me a lot of the early stage of the Internet um, where people kind of get it, but don't really understand the inner workings of it. So they're trying to essentially take that next step whether it's an individual investor who's just trying to understand it so they don't make mistakes on, you know, betting on the wrong company, or if it's an enterprise who's maybe looking at a strategic, um, you know, plan for a roadmap that they're trying to integrate either Web3 or some sort of crypto element into it. You know, if you look at, you know, just the Polygon Starbucks uh, example, those are way up the the food chain in terms of big companies that are really starting to try to implement. But even they, I think to a certain extent, I talked to a lot of the teams at Starbucks and many of the big fortune 500s. And, you know, I just point blank, ask them, do you guys have a web three team? Are you actively developing in this area? Most, I would say 90% or more in many cases are either just getting started or they literally are taking a web two uh, product manager or web, or dev lead and trying to convert them to web three and letting them learn literally as they fly the plane. So it's, it's very, very early for sure. That's the theme of this industry. Everyone's kind of uh, learning as we fly. Um, yeah. Paul, just curious, what are, when you talk to these different companies, what are their biggest pain points? Like where, where is either the confusion or what are the challenges right now that large enterprises face when they go into web three? Yeah. It's, listen, it's the same it's the same story. I've got, fortunately, you know, at my age, you know, I'm in my early fifties and, um, the amount of technology innovation that I've had a chance to see very lucky. Cause I was in on the early stage when I was a young developer with Microsoft. Uh, I was in the era in which people kind of looked at the internet as kind of a fad. So I kind of was in those boardrooms when that was being laughed at. Uh, I was also in in the boardrooms of major brands when uh, they looked at social media and also said, this is a fad, it's going to go away. I think that's exactly the same thing that they're looking at with Web3. The problem is if it's any gray hair in the boardroom, they're usually the ones that are sitting there very silent, very stoic, and looking at this as, listen, we've seen this you know, play before. Uh, we're not going to get it, you know, get caught with our, our pants down here. So they're starting to play a lot more strategically. They, the problem is right now is there's just not enough resources for them to make good decisions. And that's the challenge because right now it's either VC oriented, which have a, you know, obviously have a stake in the game or it's web three uh, developers that have either moved over to it and are coming in from a Web 2 stack that don't fully understand what's happening in Web 3, and they're, they too are learning. Uh, so very inexperienced um, you know, scenarios that are, I think are playing out in the Fortune 500 space right now. What I think it's going to simply mean is we're going to see a lot of mistakes early on, just like we did in, you know, in Web 1 and even in Web 2. Um, but their biggest pain point right now is trying to figure out how do we even staff this and how do we, how do we put this on the roadmap? Um, and then how do we, you know, allocate budgets to it, which is another area that they're trying to fight with right now. Yeah. Fa- yeah. Fascinating because we, we talk to recruiters and, and everyone else in between. And, you know, one of the themes that we've brought up, um, Paul, in the, in the past is failing in public, basically. 
mm-hmm. um, that that idea of you know we are moving fast um, with limited resources, and mistakes will happen. Um, we don't want them to happen, especially on the the economic side of things or the tokenomic side of things. We've seen it happen, um, but it's an unfortunate part of of what um, what this world is. You know, we talked about Microsoft and Apple kind of developing, and they fail every day. Mm-hmm. But they fail within their own walls, right? And now it's just open in the, in the the whole cosmos, you know. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's I, we're, you see it constantly. I mean, you could just look at just Solana alone would get, would be the yeah. poster child for it, you know. And I think people <laughs> are recognizing that and also trying to flex um, not only their strategies around this, but also kind of the framework in in what they're doing from a people standpoint uh, because most likely the developer leads, even the biz dev leads or, or the project leads that are taking out the web three for a lot of these bigger companies. And even for some of the smaller companies that are trying to uh, be more aggressive in the space. Most likely these are short lived positions. I don't think, you know, it's funny. I look at the rosters of these web three companies, you know, I've been in tech for 25 years I know when I understand, I, I, I know it when I see a, a web dev that knows what they're doing. And I know when a project lead is got the kind of skill sets that it's going to take to, to leap this forward, not saying anything bad about kids or young people that are just getting started. Cause some, in many cases, their innovation ideas are way above that of, you know, some people that's got a little more gray, gray hair in the space. But one thing I'm seeing is um, a very interesting shortage. We saw this before. But this time it's even more uh, hyper um, realistic in the sense of the fact that the developers that we see today in some of these projects, they're taking too long. They know they're taking too long and to try to get something off. And I think eventually these guys and people uh, get replaced by maybe either an emerging crop right now of developers in Web3 that really start to get it. And, you know, we create the next, you know, superstar engineers that really are going to be the leaders in the space, but it's, it's kind of a wild West right now. Very unusual <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's going to take time and you kind of have to grow your own actually, you know, yes. to your point. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, we're seeing it. Uh, we're like I said before, we're talking to recruiters and it, there is a glut, you know, there is, it's not a you know massive problem right now, but I think mm-hmm. as Web three is adoption just kind of skyrockets, it's going to be a real problem soon. Yeah, and so. I think the Fortune five hundred companies are the ones that most likely will win, providing that they have an executive team that has committed to the space. You look at a brand like Chipotle or Starbucks. I know these are two food brands, but retail is most likely going to see some pretty significant leaps in this area. Look at AMC, what they've been able to do. And I think they'll continue to be very aggressive. You look at their CEO, he's he's pretty much been, and I think he was kind of backed into it, obviously through the Wall Street bets kind of debacle that occurred. But I think he was kind of backed into what was happening in pop culture. And with pop culture, it kind of led him into NFTs and obviously now into understanding what's next for AMC. But it's that that I think happens in a lot of these companies that are are already seeing these kind of dynamics. They have seen them for quite some time. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's the technology shift, right? We can always talk 2.0 to 
But when you're talking about these executives that have been around for for a long time and have, you know, raised and built massive brands and companies and organizations, uh, you know, they need to take the mental shift, that kind of 3.0 jump the chasm shift into really understanding why we're we're building these technologies um, and fostering the idea of truth. Right. And then there's the idea of, you know, oh, these NFTs are, you know, to your point, pop culture and things are happening and we've got to get involved in it. And, and you know, we we commonly say it's not all about crypto punks and, and the bored apes. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about utility, right? So once you understand yes. that it's not just that fun little JPEG, that there are smart contracts that could have AI uh, built into it. Um, they could be, work, you know, used for um, supply chains and really sophisticated business applications. Th- that's kind of the education that they need to kind of go beyond what's kind of just in their, you know, in the, right in front of them as far as uh, NFTs go. Oh, for sure. I think the NFT space has been very similar to the early stages of the social media space is that it was looked at as, you know, very pop culture driven. It didn't necessarily have a business model behind it that, you know, most people at that time, when you think about all the way back to 2007 now and 2008, when social really kind of uh, got its wings, there were a lot of CEOs. And I, again, back to just my history of working in the media business, working with companies that were developing, including we, our own strategies around social and how what we were going to be doing in the future of streaming and podcast. I launched my first podcast in 2006 and I was, um, and it was interesting because and the reason I think it's important because of the NFT discussion, when we launched our first podcast in 2006, I was part of another media company. I had merged uh, another media company with a larger media company. Uh, they were mostly magazines and events. I had brought the online product to them, um, the tech component, the mobile aspect. Uh, and they pushed back on two things. They pushed back on mobile. Mobile will never be able to overtake web browsing. Wow. Um, that was what was told to me. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> uh, and then they pushed back on podcasting. And I said, listen, it's going to be very early. We're going to be super edge and we're going to bleed for a long time. But once we break out and there's a utility for this, it's going to be big. Trust me, this is going to be a media uh, transformation. And uh, a friend of mine whose his name is Adam Curry, he was one of the original um, – well, he was. Him and uh, – well, it wasn't uh, – I can't remember the other guy he, he developed Are you talking with. about Adam Curry from uh, the old MTV days? Yeah. So Adam Curry launched <laughs> and created the uh, the RSS concept, Dave Weiner. Dave Weiner yep. and Adam Curry. So Dave Weiner was the developer. Adam Curry came to him, and they tried to create uh, the RSS feed, which we know as now, which is what podcast run, runs on. And Adam was uh, a longtime friend that I had just found through – the annals of podcasting because he had launched it about two years prior to that. And he'd be kind of, and at that time you have to remember the the podcast almost didn't exist. And Curry was the one who brought it to uh, Steve jobs and jobs actually got him in his office and said, do you mind if we create, you know, a podcast app out of this thing? But the point I'm getting at is that if you have someone like a Steve jobs that took a nascent technology that was just barely birthed and said, wait a minute, there's utility here. 
that's exactly where I see NFTs today. And it's in a space where I think you're going to see a very nascent technology. We haven't seen the breakout just yet, but there's going to be a company or a person, whether it's Elon or someone else that <laughs> mainstreams this and gets it into a utility use case that literally changes the dynamic of business forever. For sure. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And and uh, it's funny you bring up Adam Curry. I have a, a soft soft spot for him. I spent many years working for MTV Networks, and of course, um, my generation. I grew up on MTV, so uh, lots of uh, you know love and respect for Adam Curry for sure. Um, he did some amazing stuff within the podcast space, as you just mentioned. So yeah, he's doing. Um, he's pretty pretty crazy. Good guy. Yeah. Paul, well, what do you think? Um that that big moment will look like because there's something kind of interesting about web three that's different than the dot-com era i feel like you're almost seeing the hype of blockchain and crypto before we've seen the massive use case whereas when you look at the dot-com era it's almost like the use cases were kind of obvious underground but the hype wasn't really there you know you had people saying what is why do i need a website what what's the purpose so this is almost a little bit inverted but what do you think that'll look like and and do you have a sense of not that we're predicting which company, but what what that moment may be. You know, when you look at the history repeats itself, it's just so interesting to watch. Whether you look at the last 25 years of history or the last 250 years of history. Um, and I study history a lot, especially from the economic forefront and kind of the whole aspect of how societies grow. And even just going back to the social state in which we saw the transfer transformation occur in the mid 2000s. I think it has a lot of similarities to what we will see with web three. And the reason I say that is because of the fact that at that time, um, you know, the top 100 Twitter accounts, um, I've been on to, uh, Twitter since 2008, I think was when I, when I actually signed up, I'll have to look at my account. But the point was, is that, um, the top, you know, 100 Twitter accounts today, versus what they were back then, were ironically not any one media company, not any one pop star, you know, things of that nature. So it was a very early stage. So I think the scenario here is that we are seeing a very different um, situation unfolding in Web3 web that is unique and has not been seen before, at least not, at least in modern technology. So I think uh, what we'll see is it's either gonna be gaming or fashion will be most likely breaking it out. The 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 outside um, horse in the race is sports and whether or not they're going to be able to maybe make the bridge over to it, whether it's some sort of sports integration from, you know, what like Chili's and Socios is doing with just what they're seeing around uh, the whole soccer aspect. But I think it will be a potential opportunity in the future for sure. Yeah, and we're you know, and, and and that brings us to something that we've been talking about quite a bit is you know the adoption, right? So who's poised to to adopt quicker and and really have a presence here? And I I totally agree with you, Paul, in the sense that number one, gaming for sure. There's already microeconomics happening within games and platforms. Um, that'll you know that whole industry will kind of push the metaverse. Uh, uh, world forward. But I agree with you on the fashion end of it too, because we're seeing that with like Nike and Artifact right now. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely fascinating. And I love that the, that partnership actually happened because they're really 
gamifying the NFT space. They're making it engaging and they're offering um, utility and entertainment uh, along the way, whether it be, you know, virtual, um, you know, sneakers or gear uh, within a virtual space or, you know, a custom pair of sneakers. Yeah. So we're starting to see that a lot. Um, Who else do you think is poised to kind of really push forward? I mean, we've got Solanas, we've got Starbucks, you know. Yeah, it'll be retail. Retail will be another, you know, major move. The the challenge with retail is they move a little bit more lethargically in the sense that uh, they're cautious to a certain extent. They don't want to hurt their brand. Uh, they don't want to make a, a wrong move, but at the same time, they don't want to alienate the up-and-coming, you know, millennial and Gen Z audience, which they know is kind of adapting to this kind of technology. So they, they're kind of living in both worlds right now, a Web 2.0 world and a, a rising star Web 3.0 world. So I think retail will be one of the factors uh, that plays into it. In terms of the companies or the projects that make the breakout, listen, I've, ex- I've interviewed probably a 1,000 executives in the Web 3.0 space just in the last three years. And... Uh, I mean, because before we launched PBN, we were doing a lot of research on the backside of spinning up the uh, one, the network, and to get it rolling. Because we really kind of thought that crypto would only be a subset of the channel. And we thought AI, robotics, and uh, EVs to a certain extent would kind of be the, the baseline. Now, again, I was wrong. <laughs> crypto Web3 kind of just it sucked up all the air in the room. Um, even though I, you know, now we're dealing finally, you know, a couple of years later, we're dealing with, uh, AI technologies. When you look at what Tesla's doing with their Tesla bot, that most likely we'll start to see some movement in that space. And that's good for, you know, how we cover the space, but the, the big moves right now in web three are the obvious companies, the polygon studios, et cetera, that will most likely make uh, the biggest moves. But I still believe I say this on the show often is that I'm not sure that we actually are seeing the company that's going to make the breakout that everybody thinks is coming. I'm not even sure that company has been formed yet. It's likely to Mm -hmm. be a founder or startup, a startup lead that's either working at another company right now or very young, um, you know, millennial or Gen Z that is literally coming up with the idea of where this is all going. And we're still maybe a decade away uh, from really seeing that take off. I think there'll be a lot of experiments in the next decade and there'll be some big wins and some very uh, public failures. But um, I think, uh, I think the course is set right now. It's just a matter of how many people get on the boat. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, The, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't, and it could be that small fry right now that mm-hmm. just kind of blows up and has that killer idea, yeah, uh, and just blows everyone out of the water. And I think there are, you know, I'll just add to that. And I think some for some of the big boys out there, no names mentioned because we don't know who they will be. Um, they're going to learn a lot. They're going to get a, a lot of bumps and bruises. I think mm-hmm. uh, in the next ten years, some of them will. Uh, if they don't adopt, as we were talking about before, quick enough uh, or have the right resources or push forward with the right technologies. So we may see that as well. Yeah. Paul, I'm curious also. Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, I think there is a um, there's actually an age gap right now occurring in Web3 that I've seen 
um, really show up on the founders and the team pages. Uh, and, and of course also with, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, w- when I was in Silicon Valley, most every new founder during the dot bomb era, when I was doing a lot of investing, almost every founder I talked to was under the age of 25. And today I'm seeing founders on web three between 35 and 55. It's a much, it's a different era now. And the reason I think that's occurred is because we're seeing people who have seen this before and they're transitioning into web three because they kind of know, you know, it's the old Gretzky. They're skating to where the puck yeah. is going. So th- they're a little bit more savvy around it. So, and they understand the need for leadership, which I think is going to be a really interesting dynamic because the, the difference between a web three, I don't know if you guys have uh, followed some of these uh, early NFT creators, but some of the new NFT creators, there is a marked difference in their creative style, in their whole pop culture. I mean, you really have to extend into, in some cases, three generations to really understand what's happening in this space. It's a very, um, uh, it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon right now. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the age thing uh, with founders because. Yeah, the the beginning uh, internet was like kids and under twenty five, as you were mentioning. We we also we work with a lot. We help people build and design and communicate uh, within the Web three space. And a lot of what we're hearing is very it echoes your sentiment. And a lot of them, I'm like, well, don't we want to celebrate some of these guys, the developers, and uh, like you know what we're we're fixated on the the founders. And the diversity of history and the depth of history that they have, either within the technology sector or even outside of the technology sector, sometimes into military experience, um, showing the rest of the world that, you know, there are uh, adults steering the ship here. So it's fascinating uh, to see how you said the Gretzky, uh, um, you know, leading the puck kind of thing. Um, It's spot on, spot on. Yeah, it's very interesting. But you right definitely now, want that sure. mix too, right? I mean, it seems like it seems like you want to have that youthful side, and especially like when we talk to some younger folks in the NFT space, there is a cultural difference. It seems like you want to make sure you're on the pulse of uh, of uh, because these are completely new artistic styles, completely new ways uh, of sure. ownership. Uh, even if if you have the experience, it's uh, it's a different thing. But but Paul, just jumping around a little bit, I, I want to get your take on some recent events. There's been so much happening over the year and over the past few months, uh, like the merge. And uh, just curious, what, what are your thoughts on that? What do you see happening to the industry? What's the significance of, of an event like that? The Ethereum merge, I think, is uh, is probably, yeah, listen, I've been in tech for 25 years. Yeah, and I've, I know I ran 300 developers uh, in Asia when we were on a very tight timeline to get something done for Microsoft. And so I understand what the kind of an understanding of a little bit of the feat that was just accomplished. And I look back and I think, gosh, we were developing OSs when OSs were just really starting to break out. That was a big feat. Sure. But I feel like the Ethereum merge was most likely the most technologically advanced feat we have accomplished yet. Uh, when you look at the size, speed, I think, has been one that uh, has been unmatched. Uh, so what they've been able to pull off, I think, is 
somewhat miraculous when you think about the, just the amount uh, and, and at the same time, the importance that that played for the crypto space, had that not happened smoothly as it did, um, I think it would have possibly put a black eye on crypto that may have never recovered from. So it, it was looked wow. at, I think, from the industry insiders as this is either going to screw everything up or if these guys pull this off, it's literally going to stick a flag on the ground and say this can be done, especially when you think about j just the transition of what uh, ETH was trying to do in the Ethereum uh, group there. I, I mean, Vitalik, he's, you know, he's kind of outlined it for quite some time. And I know there's a lot of people that say they miss the mark and miss deadlines all the time. But the fact that they were able to stay on this on this one uh, was pretty um, pretty amazing. I, I was just in awe by what they were able to pull off. Yeah, there's tremendous amounts of benefits, obviously speed, the price drop, or the whole bit, you know, uh, and in, I completely agree. It's one of the most, you know, profound technology advancements within the space for sure. But I think maybe, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on proof of work versus proof of stake? That to me, that topic is perhaps one of the more tenuous sure. discussions amongst developers and, and the community alike. Yeah. Um, proof of work is, I still believe it's probably the core value of what crypto is really designed for. When you look at just what Bitcoin has been able to do, um, as a true proof of work model, it is, and I think it is the, the true essence of, of blockchain. So when I look at that, I still believe proof of work is still the alpha, but proof of stake is interesting but at the same time, um, I'm also a little bit concerned with proof of stake in the sense of decentralization versus centralization. Yeah. And I think centralization go. could be a factor down the road. Now, sure, it's not happening right now, but possibly in the future, um, it could be a big, a bigger issue than it is today. But we're still very young on on true big proof of stake networks outside of, you know, some of the obvious ones, you know, in the layer one area and even in the layer two aspect. But I think the opportunity there is really large. The challenge will be centralization. And this is the thing that I think with Ethereum, it, it does face as a potential. It may not be a potential in any near future, meaning the next decade, but as it starts to uh, get more and more prominent, uh, and more investors and institutional capital, et cetera, coming in, it is a very good possibility we could start to see a little bit more centralization, which would be detrimental, I think, to Ethereum as a whole. Couldn't agree more. And that is my number one red flag with everything here. Yeah. Are we going back to what we know? Yeah, it's and exactly what we the, know the old way. Work. <laughs> it just it added another way. layer to the same thing. Just yeah. add another layer to it, and right. there you go. Um, yeah, the, you know, the majority taking the stake of the pool. Um, it's just back to where we are right now. And it's clearly not working, obviously. Just open up any news outlet or turn on any radio station, uh, and it's not working. So huge concern for us here as well. But Vitalik is. is a brilliant person. He must have certain plans in place or has uh, concerns about this too, right? I have theories on that. Uh, not that he's not brilliant, that yeah. that there are there are actors in any early stage industry. And I'm you know, I won't go on the record here too much with my private thoughts about what this what's really happening here. 
but if in, in any early stage of any industry, whether you look back, um, and I've had, a, as I said, had a chance to see this a couple times, there's always a puppet master. Um, it, it just happens yeah. to be the case here in, in crypto. Uh, I see it through, I mean, we look at on-chain analytics, uh, our, our own power index, our crypto power index is a sentiment tool. And, you know, it's a very accurate tool with, uh, defining where markets move based on sentiment and with social, uh, it is one of the key fundamentals of how price action occurs in the market. So we're watching this very closely. I've spent a decade on building data science models around this. So we've broke it a hundred times and then modified it to adapt to what we're seeing out there in the marketplace. So what concerns me is when I see sentiment data that doesn't correlate with price action. Then I step back and I go, we, we've got some, there's real manipulation going on here. I, I didn't really yeah. in the beginning think that that could be at play here. But as I said, in early markets, there's always puppet masters. And unfortunately, I feel like that we are faced with uh, an industry right now that there are a handful of puppet masters, I think, that are pulling the strings for the entire industry. Remember, this is only a trillion-dollar industry, okay? We are still a baby uh, in the size and scope of what the global industry should be. Look at the restaurant industry. That's a $4 trillion industry globally. Look at the retail industry, medical industry. There's And, and then you take the financial you know, in, industries as a whole, different markets, whether it's gold or look at the S&P and securities, real estate, et cetera. I mean, what we see right now in Web3, Bitcoin, Obviously, cryptocurrencies is still just a beginning, and because it's so small, yeah. it it falls prey to these bad actors. Now, I'm not saying that there's bad actors in Ethereum, mm. but I will question everything in crypto. I'm just I understand where the movements are, and I see the upside is vastly dynamic and also vastly opportunistic for the right people in the right place at the right time. It's happened in social. It's happened in early tech mobile. You know, it's just uh, unfortunate. It's human nature. Yeah, great. Paul, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, fascinating points. And and for me, the Ethereum thing, the, the red flag for me to the idea of what I would say, maybe not bad actors, but actors or, <laughs> or people swaying the what's going on there, yeah. they definitely, someone or a group of people had a sway over Vitalik and and company there. So to me, it's okay. Um, there are government and financial regulations happening all over the place. They're mm -hmm. playing whack-a-mole with all the prototypes, as we know. Um, the the majority of the voices within that community, perhaps tapping or whispering in Vitalik's ear, are all in bed with um, government and or financial regulators. And regulators, that was yeah. a huge red, red flag to, for me to, to, to learn that. Um, and I'm not calling them bad actors. I'm just calling them maybe the usual actors. <laughs> yeah, it's the like usual any suspects, other business. Yeah, I, I don't know why anyone would look at this industry and think that it's not going to operate in business practices that have been in, in function for over 200 years. Uh, it, it's not going to change. It's it, the difference is is that yeah. the model has changed, 
and the potential for decentralization is real. Decentralization is, I do believe, is the future of where we're going to see this industry go. The problem, I think, though, is because of the powers that be, whether you look at uh, legislative powers, um, financial powers within some of the strongest companies and, and VCs in the world, um, there is a, there's a real opportunity here for, for that to get thwarted. And, and I do believe that we're in a position right now with Bitcoin. Inter interestingly enough, Bitcoin is an ironic, and I still theorize that, that we actually, I think Satoshi might actually still be around. So that's my, another <laughs> hypothetical belief that there that's may be some. That's a whole other show, Paul. Believe that that's there's something going on there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it is interesting how elusive the creation Or the cypherpunks, yeah. right? They're yeah. still Which around. Which gets me, yeah, some gets me. Yeah, this is uh, – mm, boy, I wish I could just go yeah. free on this. But anyway, um, there's a lot of yeah, things we, happening. We might have space. to sidebar, Paul. <laughs> we might have to sidebar on that one because I'm right with you. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's uh, it's a, a dicey dis discussion at, at the yeah, very least. For, for sure. Well, let me ask this, though. Um, when we talk about regulatory, the regulatory landscape, what, what does an optimal setup look like and what – people who want to see this field expand because decentralization is so significant and, and will change yeah. so many industries. What can people do to kind of uh, push it or nudge it in the right direction? So my theory is, is uh, pretty straightforward. I'm not necessarily a believer in, in big government. Um, I do believe that we are in a situation right now where the United States has another gift on the doorstep setting in front of them that could, you know, be recognized as one of the most innovative applications ever in the history of man, just where, where decentralized blockchain could go. So I hope that, um, and, and with little, um, with little faith, but I do hope that we're going to see a, a major renovation just in, in, uh, not, I don't really have a, uh, a dog in the hunt in terms of which party wins. What I'm more interested in is from a societal standpoint is that we have lawmakers and regulators that at least understand what this technology means. And there's a handful of them out there that I feel, and I've talked to several senators and congressmen. Uh, Tom Embers is a good example. I've had him on my show. Uh, I've listened and I've talked to Pat Toomey and, uh, and I've talked to Kristen uh, Gillibrand. So we've, we've had these conversations before of what they're trying to do. I get the, the politicians speak, and I've had a chance to sit on lobbyist committees before uh, with different industries, and I know what I'm up against when I talk to a senator or a congressman. They're saying the right things. They, are, they really are. The ones that act or maybe even know what's happening, they're starting to say the right things. That actually worries me a little bit because if they start to say the right things and they do understand what's happening, the next big move is going to be a handout, their handout, meaning we're going to see, again, you know, special interest groups and areas within government that have been acting in these, in these parameters for decades on end to move back into a position, position to possibly bring blockchain into that realm. And if that happens here in the United States, 
that's a concern because it does open up the opportunity really for the first time because we didn't have this chance to do this in um, the era of what we saw with the birth of the Internet because Silicon Valley had such a stranglehold on the developer community and the finance community. That was why Silicon Valley and the power of the United States grew uh, as it has in the past 30 years is because we controlled the parameters. Bitcoin is not a controlled parameter. Decentralization is not a controlled parameter. This scares a lot of politicians because they maybe when they really do wake up and the light bulb comes on, they realize what that is. And uh, my concern is that I think we'll see possibly emerging markets actually be the ones that break out into real opportunistic venues of where the future will go, which could put the nation states in the G20s and the G7 really at odds with what's happening because you, you, we could see a diversion. This is in geopolitics that we get into, but I think we could see a diversion occurring right now. It, it's a fly on, you know, the buttock of an elephant today, but one day it will be a cheetah. And once it gets to that level, uh, Agile enough to move, uh, quick enough to attack, and capable enough to destroy, that creates a different dynamic in the political arena. And I think that's when we may see real regulation done in a manner in which it would be beneficial for the world. But I don't necessarily think it's going to happen in the United States, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more uh, in the sentiment of um, – you know, there is something special right at uh, at the, the foot of the U.S. Um, we are get you know, we are active in the space. But I think in, in the and some regulation, in my eyes, at least, is good. I, I mean, totally look, agree with that. If yep. there was no regulations on NASDAQ or any other major exchanges, it would be literally World War three, four, five and six, um, you know, but I think, you know, to your point, you have to abandon the idea of absolute control and exactly. do as I say, not as I do, mm -hmm. um, which is 99.9% .9 of all governments or nations right now. And you have to kind of adopt the mindset of, you know what, S get involved, understand, and create worlds that people want to come to. Totally. You know? Uh, and, and that's something that's missing in every industry from mm -hmm. marketing, advertising, uh, you know, finance, everything. And it's a mind shift that people have to make. And and it's not some kind of, you know, voodoo, you know, hippy dippy thing. It's real. It's a mind shift that is an, it's an advanced mind shift and not everyone will get it. Yeah. But we need the right people to get it. You know, yeah, and so. if you look at the emerging markets, the reason that they're doing this is out of necessity, you know, yeah. and um, innovation is what breeds inside those kinds of environments where they have to do something. There, there's no other option. You know, when you're in the U.S. or even to a certain extent in parts of the U.K. and parts of Europe, there isn't a necessity there yet to to have to make those kinds of concessions. So. I think it still is um, – when people ask me, because I, I, sometimes I will, will sound as if I'm more doomsday-ish, and, I, and I, not, I don't want to be that way. What I'm trying to say is let's, let's really talk about reality here. Let, you know, Put all the blinders away. 
stop giving me the double speak. Let's talk reality here, what we know and, and what we've seen through history. And if we just follow those guidelines, a lot of times, and it's the problem that I think, um, you know, when I get a chance to talk to regulators, a lot of times I don't think they like me calling them out for not only where we are in, in government, but also where we're going. So, um, it, the, the advantage is like, to your point, um, what you're saying, Rich is it is a great opportunity. It's one, I think that the world is, um, not necessarily ready for just yet, but it's coming. Uh, and I think because of the, um, generational dispute around governments in general and the generational, uh, computational power that's getting ready to come onto the scene, we're going to see some changes. And now we have the tools that we maybe did not have in the eighties, didn't have in the nineties and barely had in the two thousands. You know, what we have now is a set of tools that, I mean, literally could change mankind. So it, this is a big step that we're getting ready to take into. Uh, absolutely. And I, we often talk about the idea, to your point, it can change mankind. It can change the way society actually thinks. Mm -hmm. It has that power of truth, right? Yeah. And, you know, Michael Saylor, uh, I think and you've had him on your show, which yeah. I'd love to have a few minutes with him myself and certainly Matt. Um, you know, he his approach and even, you know, Robert Breedlove, for, uh, for, for the most part, yeah. they're historians and they, they predicate the, the whole – their whole platform is predicated on not understanding history and not repeating it. Um, and that's what – we just need to stop doing that. We keep shooting ourselves in the foot generation after generation after generation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting and the power – that this has, I don't think people really understand how prolific it is. It's going to be a big one. Yeah. What do you think of, uh, Paul, this is the other, uh, I would say regulation is a big thing. And, and in a sense, blockchain's biggest threat is its own effectiveness. But then also uh, on the cybersecurity side, I think that's the other mm -hmm. really big obstacle when we look at mass adoption. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? What are the trends that you've been observing on that front? You know, we, we can't see the kind of growth <laughs> we want to see with the kind of hacks we witnessed because the blockchain is so open it is um and can fall prey to uh advanced actors in you know the scenario of of real hacks being being done the difference i think is we're, we're right now we're in an arms race and what i'm saying by that is um there's a set of actors out there that whether you look at whether they're in China or in Southeast Asia or possibly in the uh, Eastern Bloc countries, they're playing um, right now with tool sets that are really Stone Age in, in comparison to what they need. Uh, the development, I think, is going to come around AI, AI around not only the evolutional opportunity we have with AI computational capabilities, but whether or not we truly see quantum computing become real and to a, a full fruitful use case. I think those are, um, that's the race that is happening right now. What I mean by that is there's a set of, there's a set of people that have the capability of, of doing some of these major hacks, whether you look at the, um, the Ronin hack, or you look at some of the things that we've seen around a lot of these blockchains that have been exposed, but at the same time, there's the white hat guys. And the white hat guys are a little bit more competent in terms of their capability because they're driving the ship. 
So I think they have the capability to fend this off for a while. But at some point, we will have to have uh, some sort of cybersecurity layer on blockchain that eventually gets it into um, where it becomes true privacy. And I think that is a scenario that we will see play out. That technology doesn't exist today, even though there's a few companies I know, and I've talked to some CEOs and some partners that are, are working on it. But I think that will be the big step, and it will be the big step that's required for uh, major banks and major regulatory uh, financial institutions, regulated financial institutions, to take that step. Um, outside of what we see with the traditional surface stuff, granted, still banks get hacked more than anything in the world. The amount of financial um, fraud that's going on is it's unbelievably large. It's not – it's, you know, it, it – Anything that's happening in Bitcoin dwarfs that uh, or, or crypto in general. But when, when crypto gets to a $10 trillion market cap as a whole or we get to a $20 trillion market cap and we supersede what's happening in gold, now we have an issue. Uh, and I think at that point, uh, security will be one of the most paramount. In fact, I'm, I'm looking for some of the blockchain security companies, whether we see flower blocks and some of the, you know, scenarios that may play out in those types of development circles. Um, I'm looking for that company because there's going to be a handful of those guys that come in and become rock stars in this space yeah. uh, for the future. You, you, you are the spot new on, Paul. We, um, we are talking to a couple of um, cybersecurity companies that are traditionally uh, made the leap years ago from 2.0 mm -hmm. to 3.0. Yep. And to me, much like yourself, I was like, this is a no brainer, whether it's an investment or a partnership for sure. It's a no brainer. Um, and you know, we're seeing, like you said, it's not, there's not tons of them like they are now with, you know, on every desktop, mm -hmm. but the handful that we've seen are, you know, focusing on both enterprise and personal uh, web three security, yeah, which is really interesting. Now they're just like, they're not just doing enterprise. They're going into people's personal, uh, you know, person, you know, protecting personal data, not just yeah. finances, but data as well. Cybersecurity. We're seeing a lot of it happen. Um, and to your, your point, Paul, I, I think this is like an industry that is about to blow up. Yeah. You know, well, it's so, going it, to, it'll yeah. be a necessity, okay. you know, just yeah. from a regulated, a regulated standpoint, um, especially I think as we start to see mainstream adoption occur, the amount of consumers that will come into the space that are kind of, you know, old school uh, in terms of thinking, even to the extent of whether you look at family offices, private equity, any of those kinds of moves, security will be a big, a big part of this and staying out of networks that have any kind of remote hack potential is going to be huge, which is going to lean back into what's happening with Bitcoin and some of the major uh, projects that are out there right now that they can invest in for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I assume a lot of the major uh, institutional players are kind of waiting on the sideline a bit until we see a little more uh, cybersecurity. Am I right on that? Um. You know, the ones that I talk with right now, obviously they, the, the, the public-facing voice that comes out of these uh, these investors is still talking very cautiously. There are quite a few, though, that are placing their bets, especially in the current market conditions, as they continue to press down. You know, we'll probably see some you know some further 
um, tolerance to where this market's going to go, you know, without giving any price predictions, but most likely we'll see some more downside. But um, I've been surprised at their lack of concern around security because that that's what usually one of the first things hmm. that comes up, even though security is still one of the big markers. I think that from a retail you know standpoint, if you talk to anybody on the street, you know, even my wife, who's a very educated person, she's often questioned security around everything, whether it's banking, traditional banking, finance, you know, um, securities accounts, et cetera. But uh, when you get into blockchain, uh, trying to explain the layer in which security occurs, even if you're just doing your own, you know, self-custody, to me, that's probably the ultimate in security, even though that can be, you know, challenged at certain levels. But I think if you're somewhat smart about it, but it's it's a layer that you have to leap to that typically maybe one in a hundred people would do, which is not uh, a scenario where you're going to see mass adoption. Uh, so to answer your question, it's less there's much less concern there than I anticipated there would be. Uh, now, granted, they may be looking at it with uh, their own IT people and saying, listen, there's not really enough at risk here. We're at more at risk right now within the traditional systems than we are here, at least today. But when this thing starts to move, we get to $4 trillion, we get to $8 trillion, we get to $10 trillion. All right, there's going to be some new players in the game uh, in terms of uh, challenging the secure layers of what blockchain will be. At that time, I think uh, they're also probably looking at the just the uh, the landscape and saying there's really not a lot of options here, guys. We can only only do so much institutional security. We can only there's only a handful of companies that are even really operating at um, what I would say is competent levels. Um, you know, we're gonna have the Fireblock CEOs on and really grill them on where this is going. But I think they are probably one of the fewer uh, you know few entities that have really started to spread the gap there. So. It's still very early, um, and with any early market, you know, it's pre-adoption. So the security—I mean, think about the web. I mean, we didn't have SSL for you know eight years <laughs> after. I mean, everybody was just yeah, free, kinda... and, you know, just running around like it was just <laughs> everything's cool. But you know, so it's yeah, everything's similar secure. adoption. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting because we work with a lot of protocols, and now we're starting to kind of really formed some nice partnerships with cybersecurity companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm trying to connect the dots between protocol layer, layer one, layer two um, protocols yeah. um, and cybersecurity. And I'm asking questions of both parties. And to your point, I was actually surprised at how little that that's going on. Yeah. Um, and in, in my, this is the mistake I made mentally was, well, it's blockchain. It solves all problems. Not it's already really totally secure. <laughs> yeah. It's already totally right. secure via, you know, cryptography. Um, it is, a, it is a, a popular misconception. Um, but to your point, there are all sorts of backdoors that could happen. Um, it's tougher to get through. You have to be a lot slicker these days to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm surprised. And if if I'm surprised at this level and protocols mm-hmm. at that level are kind of like, yeah, we need to step out, up our game. Th- that's a little concerning, but also a sign of where things are going to go. Like, as yeah, far the as- Ronin hack is is a good model, um, you know, and I've talked to Alexander about this at length. Um when you look at how Sky Mavis atten- really addressed this, 
the first step was the the fact that they knew they saw it coming so th- that to me is is already like 80% of the way to get to a security layer that works is when you can start mm. to see the math and start to really see how the attacks are occurring much like a DNS attack but it doesn't have the kind of scenarios I don't know if you guys uh, really took a look at the Ronin hack we covered this on the show in depth about it, and it was a spider chart showing where it occurred, how quickly they were trying to move the tokens into certain wallets, and then they were using uh, wallet propagation to move the tokens out of there and then essentially take them into the sea. And it, essentially, you have a money laundering engine. Right. So when I look at that, but the fact that they were capable of even knowing that that was occurring to me was, wow, this is okay, this is going to be achievable. This is not like what we're seeing even still today when you think about money laundering and just the amount that's happening in, in the regular fiat system. It's it's uh, well, A lot of people don't realize how much money is laundered through the fiat system right now. And I think that is in itself going to be see some very uh, good opportunistic things. But if there is one thing that I'm concerned about within this is when AI gets involved, when someone is capable of of training an AI system to propagate wallets at the speed of light. I mean, literally just, you know, millions of wallets per second, millions. When we get to that level and then create decision trees that are built into that AI methodology to move money around, this could get really unusual. Um, And at that point, it's completely untraceable which is I think a lot of the cyber guys that I've talked to at high levels in government. Uh, I talked to an NSA guy uh, who talks about this all the time and they're actually concerned that when we see AI enter into blockchain at, at the levels they think that could happen and it's still probably maybe a decade away, but literally it would be unstoppable, you know, in the sense of being able to move given the right actors at, at play. So security in the next decade, critical for the future of how this works it is like number one on on the uh the totem pole for sure yeah yeah and uh, from the ai standpoint you'll you'll have autonomous hacking networks Mm -hmm. basically you set them free and they make their own decisions and it's now at the speed of the network and it's lightning it's not like a, a manual, you know, drag and dump kind of thing. It's now happening autonomously. Yeah, it's kind of like Twitter. You know, Twitter is, I'd say, yeah. 60, maybe 70% bots. And, um, you know, that yeah. won't be for long now that Elon's got the keys. But but I think eventually that will, will start to change um, a lot of other dynamics, you know, that and also that hash rate, so to speak, is going to have to go somewhere. Yeah. You know, those farms are going to have to go somewhere. I, I fear they may. They may find their way to uh, to blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, as we sort of wrap up, um, I want to ask you just one last question. And we do this with all of our guests. Usually we, we try to get some key takeaways. And I, I think from, from our side, what do you see as most significant for businesses looking to get into this space? What should they be keeping an eye on? And uh, I guess, you know, we've talked about a lot of the challenges, but what what is your biggest optimism for blockchain, crypto, AI in the next 10 years? That's a big question and maybe hard to condense, but but yeah. as much as possible. I, actually, I think it boils down to uh, a very 
systematic process for any any company at any level to make a decision to to do something in blockchain and it, it could be anything it could be you know creating some sort of nft utility within your own business model um, it could be just utilizing you know crypto as a payment method uh, you know as something as simple as that but i think for most companies and i consult a lot with companies right now around how to adapt and the one thing that I always ask the, the team when my first, usually my first uh, meeting with them is I want you to first understand, forget about understanding blockchain, just what you know, you've, you, you know, we're at this state because you kind of know a little bit about where this is going. But I think the key is going to be every company has to make a decision on how this is going, whatever it might be around blockchain that they're interested in how it is going to make a major shift in their business and and not just saying, Hey, I want to do it cause it's cool. I, you know, I wanted a Twitter account cause I think people are going to follow me back in 2007. Uh, I was going to launch a Facebook page and start paying for likes. You know, the social media model is not where we're going with blockchain. Blockchain I think is these are going to be real utility use cases that uh, big business are going to figure out of how to integrate. So that's the first question. I want you to start developing on blockchain in, in the essence of just experimenting, but I want you to be thinking about the big picture. Starbucks is a good example. They understood where this needed to go, which was their largest mobile, um, you know, I, I would say to an extent, one of their largest successes, their mobile um, audience, what they've been able to do with digital payments and their app. So it was a natural for them to understand that blockchain could be a, an amazing tool for CRM and loyalty. And that's how they're going to use it. So they've made that decision. Uh, Chipotle is going to go a little bit different. You know, they went the, the payment route with uh, Flexa. There's a lot of companies that are starting to move in this direction. But I think a lot of companies are running into the wall right now. How do we even use it? And that's the first question that has to be answered, even if it is just not the ultimate of what it's going to be done, but at least the one step in the right direction. If they're just getting into it because it's cool, because we need to say that we have an NFT, because we need to say that we accept crypto payments, then they've already kind of lost the vision of where this is uh, where this is heading. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, just get involved, whether it be knowledge-wise or actually developing, and yeah. and have and have purpose uh, doing it for so, sure, and have an opinion. Yeah. And Paul, uh, just for people who don't already listen, I think a lot of our listeners probably do, but where, where can they find you? Where can they uh, keep up to date? So the YouTube channel is just Paul Barron Network, and you can find our two podcasts on any of the podcast spots out there. It's Tech Path Crypto and then Metaverse Insider uh, are the two podcasts that we currently host. We're getting ready to launch a third, but um, also just paulbarronnetwork.com. Any of that is going to get you into our, you know, our media engine. We'll be sure to include those links as well. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. Oh, Rich, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, we're just saying to, to the audiences, check him out. He has some really, really interesting uh, podcasts and, and points of view. So dig in. Absolutely. And, and Paul, thank thanks you, Paul. again. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been good. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers.